Father, we are just so grateful for this opportunity to come together and to hear your word together. And we are great, uh, just grateful for your faithfulness to us. And I pray that this uh, message will help us to stay faithful in a, in a culture that is uh, becoming more and more hostile to, to you and your gospel and your people. Pray that you'll give me the words to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was... 25 years ago that I graduated from the University of Kansas. That very thought troubles me. But upon graduation, I signed up with the Christian ministry uh, to go over to Hungary and to be a campus missionary there. And so in late summer, I set foot in Budapest and then made our way to Debrecen. And we had a bunch of training, team building exercises, and we were going to start our ministry at Koshut Lausch Tudemayegetim. That was the university where we would be ministering. And our strategy was to do spiritual interest surveys. We were going to try to hand out 1,500 of these surveys, and they would ask various spiritual questions, try to get their information, their contact information. The last question would be, are you interested in talking to someone about how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes, no, or maybe. And then we're going to follow up on the yeses and follow up on the maybes. It was a, a brilliant plan. Now, what made it more brilliant is when we set up shop in the main foyer, my friend Ryan and I decided to have our own innovation to get 1,500 surveys, a giant bowl of candy. You come, you talk to us, you fill out the survey, you get some candy. You like candy, don't you? And so as we set up shop, you know, we had a sign behind us, we had a bowl of candy, we had the spiritual interest surveys. And some Hungarian walked up and we were all excited. This is our first customer, right? We raised support, we went through the training, we sold out for Jesus for this moment right here. He came and he looked at the candy and he looked at the surveys. Didn't touch the candy, by the way. And then he, he, he pointed at us and said, Hare Krishnas? Now, if you don't know Hungarian, that means Hare Krishna. And we're like, Nam, no, <laughs> we're, not, we're not Hare Krishnas. Then he said, Hare Krishnas. Then he said really loudly so everybody could hear, Hare Krishna's, as if warning people don't take candy from these people. And I will admit, I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. Well, a couple hours later, Nikki, who was also on our team, came up to reinforce us and, and she asked us, how many surveys did you do? Remember the goal, 1,500. I said, well, Nikki, let me count. Too. And I was ashamed. And then she asked, why just two? What have you been doing? Well, Nikki, you don't understand. This guy looked at us and pointed at us and said that we're Hare Krishnas. And, you know, I mean, what, what were we supposed to do? And she said, gentlemen, you are not the Hare Krishnas. And then I was ashamed. I was having a very bad shame day that day. <laughs> but she was right. 
in my mind, I was just proselytizing. I was just trying to get some people to convert from one religion to another, and I lost track of what, was this, was, what this was really about. I was ashamed to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are living in a society that is heaping shame on Christians, that seeks to make us embarrassed about the gospel, but what is the antidote to that? Well, consider how Paul heartens Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. He is emboldening his protege to carry on with his ministry. Paul is in a Roman prison. He is about to leave this planet to be with the Lord and entrust the stewardship of the ministry of the gospel to his protege and disciple Timothy. And this is what he says, starting verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is telling Timothy, do not be ashamed, be willing to suffer. Now, a mature Christian doesn't seek suffering for suffering's sake. You don't just go out and be a martyr because... It's inspiring. A true mature Christian doesn't choose suffering. They choose Christ. And they choose faithfulness to Christ. And should the time come where that will be challenged, when they will be forced to choose between ease of living or pain of suffering, a faithful, convictional Christian will always choose to suffer. Because they choose Christ. And they choose the gospel. And one of the chief means that this world will try to get you to suffer is through the use of shame. Now, the use of shame has been morphing kind of before our eyes. Um, We used to live in what is called a guilt-driven culture, where centuries of Christian influence have caused all of us to, to have this inner awareness that God is always watching. That you might sin in secret, but you'll have to live with yourself. You have this inner sense of of shame, where where the opposite of shame would be, let's say, self-esteem. Shame leads to self-loathing, a a sense of self-condemnation, which is kind of fueled by the biblical idea that God is always watching and the presence and the reality of your conscience, right? Look no further than Pinocchio. One of the chief songs is, let your conscience be your guide. But now there is a a shift in our culture where it's moving more towards an Eastern way of looking at shame, where shame is something that is conferred by the community, 
Honor is something that is conferred by the community. Your worth is defined by what other people think of you, right? So the opposite of, of shame in this new culture is public affirmation and adulation. How many likes you get on Facebook? How much your tweet gets retweeted? How many people watch your YouTube video? Right? It is public affirmation. And this is why, like, the greatest pain anybody can experience, the greatest dishonor uh, would be to be canceled, to have people rally around you and lynch your public platform. Therefore, people live in fear of sharing their opinions, because if you share the wrong opinion, you will be shamed, you will be dishonored. Now, that is actually closer to what Paul was dealing with in the Greco-Roman culture. When he talks about this category of shame and being ashamed of the gospel, it's not like they were internally tormented by this gospel message. They were ashamed because the message was so out of step with the culture that they were dishonored for even believing it. Like, let's say you were to have a, a conversation with a distinguished Roman. You, you are seeking to, um, to win them to Christ, to, to share the gospel with them, that, that they need to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. He would respond by saying, well, the way you speak of him, he must be a, a great king. He must be a distinguished, must have a coterie of servants, live in a royal, royal palace. Is that right? Uh, well, actually, he, he is a great king, but he had no place to lay his head. And he didn't have servants. Rather, he would serve other people like washing his disciples' feet. Well, okay, well, clearly he's important to you, and he must have done something to distinguish himself. Uh, perhaps he is still a peasant, but he is building a movement. Uh, many kings in general start off that way. Um, where can I travel to meet this great king of yours that you're telling me to follow? Well, actually, um, he died. He died. Oh, so perhaps he died in battle, some, some great act. Uh, perhaps his glory is in the legacy of courage as he took on the enemies and his enemies. He must have killed a bunch of people before he died. Well, not really. He... Uh, he was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was handed over uh, by his own people, and he was crucified by, um, by the Romans. What? This guy was embarrassed by everybody he claims to lead, and you're following this guy? No, but, but he was raised from the dead. His body is now in heaven. Stop with this whole body business. We all know the body is just a shell you want me to follow that? Get, talk to me when you have some serious ideas. Everything about the gospel was offensive to Roman culture, and they would blow back. They would shame people for believing in it. I mean, we live in a, in a shame culture. Don't people try to shame Christians? A Duke Divinity professor once tweeted recently that evangelical Christians are the greatest threat to human existence today. It must be laid to waste, and people really mean it. And frankly, they will draw on the shameful activities of Christians to say, 
This is a result of what you believe. Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptist Church, how many people will draw upon that and peg that on anybody who holds to the sexual ethic? They look at all the Jesus signs at the Stop the Steal rally and then the subsequent tragic events that happened at the Capitol and say, see, that's, that's what we're talking about. Every pastor who falls from grace gets national media coverage. There's churches that hide their sexual abuse. Uh, there's a well-known connection between many evangelical Christians supporting the institution of slavery and even segregation. And so a secular world that wants to shame us will point to all of those things. And the response is to try to defend ourselves, is to defend the church, to defend our tribe. But the real answer to defending evangelical Christianity is to defend the evangel, is to defend the gospel message. The antidote to being shamed of the gospel or gospel shame is in the gospel itself. When you truly understand the gospel and all its glorious implications, it will push back shame and help you be faithful to tell the world what they need to hear. And so I have a two-point outline to promote this. One, to push back gospel shame, you need to realize that the gospel message is true. Okay, This is the minor point. And then the major point, the gospel, the God of the gospel is huge. So to push back gospel shame, you need to remember the gospel is true and the God of the gospel is huge. So let's look at this gospel message. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, notice the word testimony. By testimony, he's talking about the gospel message. This is something that Paul articulates very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite passages, 15, 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance why I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. This is the gospel and Paul, in Second Tim, Timothy, says this is his testimony. Now, testimony in the ancient world, uh, it, it, was a, it was a common legal practice to establish truth by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so when you look at this gospel message, this is a gospel testimony that is established by witnesses. And Paul actually furnishes witnesses for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and following. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. The gospel is true. We're not proselytizing here. We're not trying to convert people from one religion to another. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do, and that's what Mormons do. This is not something that is based off of some vision, some teacher, some prophecy. 
It is all predicated on a single historical event that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that body went into the tomb and three days later, that body was animated and resurrected and it came out of the tomb. It's a historical fact. It's true. We're not making this up. Why be ashamed that the U.S. and the Allies won World War II? It's true. Why be ashamed that we put a man on the moon? It's true. Why be ashamed that Jesus rose from the dead and declared himself to be king over the universe when it's true? The right side of history is the truth, and the truth is found in this historical real event. The gospel is not an idea. It's more than a message. It is a testimony of truth that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's the first element to push back gospel train, shame is the gospel is true. Secondly, the God of the gospel is huge. The God of the gospel is huge. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the gospel bears witness to the power of God. We know that from Romans, right? It's the power of God for salvation. That he is to harness the power of God for the proclamation of the gospel. So as, as you believe in the gospel, you are empowered by God to proclaim the gospel. It is the power of God working in you and through you. And the gospel itself sends a huge message about the hugeness of God. In fact, when we look at verse 9 through 10, we see big God theology baked into the gospel. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. This is oozing with big God theology. He's saying, remember this message. Let me just review it for you and see that the God who's giving you the power to do this is a big God. And there's three ways that this comes out. You see that God in this passage, he cannot be obligated. He cannot be obligated. You see that God's plans will never be thwarted. And you see that God's enemies will always be defeated. God cannot be obligated. God's plans will never be thwarted. And God's enemies will always be defeated. First sub-point, that's for your note-takers out there. God cannot be obligated. Look at verse 9. God who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Not because of our works. But because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So he talks about salvation, and this salvation really had nothing to do with our efforts or our works. This is a theme that you see throughout Paul. 
right? One of the great passages on salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, a lot of times we love hearing about grace and the gospel of grace. But there is an, an edge to grace. Did you know that? When somebody is saved by grace through faith and not of themselves, it basically says, you did nothing nor can you do anything to win the heart of God. God saved you not because of you, but in spite of you. Because if God saved you because of you, then it's not really grace, it's really a response to what you did. Right? This is wage theology, kind of workspace theology. Right? I labor for you, I mow your lawn, you owe me 20 bucks. I do this favor for you, you need to do this favor for me. Right? I mean, isn't that why when, when somebody you hardly know gives you like this lavish gift, let's say you're a single woman, right? What do you want? What do you want? Because we don't trade in that. We think that we always have to reciprocate what people do for us. And what Grace says is that there's no reciprocation. It's not because of works. It's not because you're good enough or smart enough or because people like you. It is independent of you. God's grace reminds us that it's only by God and His purpose that we will be saved. And this bleeds into the next point, that God's plans will never be thwarted. We see big God theology in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Notice the passive nature. He saved us. Who saved us? He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works or anything that we did, but because of His purpose and His grace, which He gave Christ Jesus when? Before you even existed. Before the ages began. I mean, this is a testimony of what we see elsewhere in Scripture of the sovereign grace of God. God, as Marlon kind of opened this can of worms, I'm going to close it, predestined us. Oh, man, there's that word. Where did this whole predestined business come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. It's a word that Paul uses five times, most notably in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose. Another word for chose is elect. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, and here's the word, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So this concept of predestining uh, and electing and choosing you before you choose Him is consistent with what we keep on reading in this passage in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 
Predestination teaches that God chose you before you chose him. It was his decision in eternity past. Now, what this means is that his decision to choose you, because we all understand that God chooses some and not others. Some people are saved and not others. And so this is the question, why, did, why am I a Christian and somebody else is not? Was it because I'm simply irresistible? Did God look at you and say, I can't help falling in love with you? Did he think, you know what, you have the type of talent and ability I need to form a team. You're on. What do you think? See, our human nature is to want to believe that there's something within us that made God want us. That it was a decision that we make, that we're smarter than your average bear. We have some unique ability, some contribution, but the testimony of Scripture is that God chose you in spite of you. Not many were wise, not many were noble. Do you know what I'm saying? So that no one could boast in anybody or in themselves, but only in the Lord. And what predestination does is it kind of seals the deal on that. Now, some people might have a, a biblical perspective and say, well, okay, he predestined us in his calling, but surely he must call all people. That everybody is predestined, right? And that way, and I respect them for trying to hold on to that word. But how does that stand up with other scriptures? Well, to answer, does God predestine everybody? Fact number one, is everybody saved? Will everybody be saved? No. Universalism is an ancient heresy. Not everybody is saved. So if you were to say that everybody is predestined, that has some interesting implications, especially in light of Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is called the golden chain. You have foreknew, predestined, call, justified, glorified. And notice the progress here. If you were foreknown by God, you will be called by God, no exception. If you were, or you were predestined by God, no exception, right? Foreknow to predestine. If you're predestined by God, you are called by God. You are summoned by God, no exception. If you are called... You are justified, declared right before the Lord, no exception. And if you are justified, you are glorified, no exception. There's no room for everyone to be called, because if everyone is called, then everyone would be saved. So what people will say is, well, okay, this whole chain starts with four new. So could it be that God sat back in eternity past and saw the movie of history. Saw everything that would happen, including who would become a Christian and who wouldn't, and said, I will choose everybody who chose me. John Abraham became a Christian. Okay. I foreknow him and I choose him. Right? Ingenious. But is that what foreknowledge means? 
That's what I call informational foreknowledge, where God knew about information of the future. But when you look at foreknowledge in the Bible, it's not talking about knowing information ahead of time. It's about knowing people in, ahead of time. For instance, you look in uh, Romans 8, 20, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 4, 9. But now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. Does God just know information about you? When he says you have come to be known by God, it's knowing in the sense of a relationship. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In the Old Testament, when you talk about knowing your wife or knowing a woman, it talks about marital intimacy. It's a relational term. And so going back to this golden chain, when he says, I foreknew you, he says, I knew you. I loved you even from eternity past. His decision to predestine you, according to Ephesians 5, was according to the purpose of his will. Now, I talked to one of my, my children about this, and I just asked her, does a message of predestination, does that, does that bother you? And she thought about it and thought about it. She's a thinker. And then she said, well, I know I'm such a wretched sinner that if he didn't choose me, I'd never choose him. So I guess I'm okay with it. May your tribe increase. Your mother has taught you well, right? Your mother has taught you well. But you know what? We worship a God who gives us sovereign grace. He's in charge of the most important decisions and the most important realities of our life. There is a big God theology that when we share the gospel, it's really his message. And when you share it, right, his sovereign grace will intervene and he'll do the work. And you see that God will do the work, including defeating all of his enemies. Look at verse 10. And which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so, and so you, you, you see a progress here, right? He saved us, right? Oh, uh-oh. Got a little bit too animated there. All right, microphone's back on. So he saved us. He made that declaration. He called us, and then he sent his son to come at the right time to, to defeat right, to, to defeat and abolish death and to give us life and immortality through the gospel, right? The wages of sin is death. You know that. And from the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't die right away physically, but an animal died to cover their shame with the animal skins. And they keep on going through the Old Testament, and there's always this animal sacrifice. The goats had to be slaughtered. Cattle had to be slaughtered. There, there had to be this substitution for people to appease the wrath of God. But they knew that cows and goats and lambs are not a sufficient substitute for humans who deserve the death penalty. Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so God sent the Lamb of God, John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died as our substitute. And when he died, he took the penalty of your sin, which is death in every form, upon himself. He was not only separated from his body, but separated from God. He endured the wrath of God. He, he endured death in, in the most severe, extreme, fullest sense for, on your behalf. And then he rose from the dead so that your sins can be atoned for and forgiven. Death has no hold on the Christian. You may die, but death is a transition point to being in the presence of the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. He abolished death. He gives you life. There is no greater blessing. A million years from now, that will be what we're talking about. And so Paul, with his big God theology in place, Jesus will defeat his enemies. God can do whatever he wants. He exercises sovereign grace. He says, for which, about the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Who appointed Paul? The Lord did appointed him to be a herald, to announce the good news, right? to tell everyone that Jesus is Lord, this is what he has done. His goal is not necessarily to convert as much as proclaim and let God do the work. He was not only a, a preacher, but an apostle, one commissioned by God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he was a teacher using the revelation given to him to teach and instruct others. And he was deeply committed to this because God appointed him to do this. And when there was ever doubt about whether or not he could continue to soldier on doing this significant, marvelous, yet grueling work in a context that opposed him on every step, he knew that God was going to stand by him the entire time. Look at verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He, He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God sovereignly saved Him. God sovereignly called Him to be a preacher of the gospel. And God will sovereignly sustain Him. You see, His big God theology pushed back any hint of shame. This is consistent throughout Scripture. Jesus, he deals with this concept of human shame in Luke 9, 23 through 26. He said to them all, to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You need to follow a shameful Savior including doing the shameful act of picking up your cross. Then he tells them, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There is a willingness to die to yourself. And then, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus addresses the competition. You can gain the whole world and save your life or you can reject the world and pick up your cross and follow me. 
And if you want to gain the whole world, the way you gain the whole world is to play by the world's rules. If you want to advance in society, you need the world to approve of you and to like you. Company policy, from now on, we would like you to sign all your emails with your name and personal pronouns, preferred personal pronouns. Pastor Dave, Lentils Bible Church, he, him. Someone goes around your office in June and, and says, hey, it's Pride Month. We're looking for some straight allies here. Do you want to put this rainbow flag on your, uh, on your office window? You know the consequences if you don't. You don't tell people where you go to church because it's that church. You have a world to gain and you need the world's approval to gain it. But this is what Jesus says in verse 26. And this is where shame comes in. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If you want the world's approval and you're willing to be ashamed of the gospel of God to get it, then when Jesus comes back, he'll be ashamed of you. You can't have it both ways. And we live in a society where I think many churches try to split the difference. They want to reach the world, and to reach the world, uh, they need to get the world to want to engage them and to come into their doors, right? So to reach the world, we need the world to like us, and to get the world to like us, we need to be like the world to a certain extent. So the pastors will wear trendy clothes. They might do some mild profanity from the pulpit just to keep it real. If you want to know where they stand on hot-button issues, it's not on the website. You have to dig a little bit. But in the end, they're going to have to make a, make a decision. Who will they stand with? Will they minister with a greater sensitivity of seeking the honor that comes from the Lord or the honor that comes from men? And Paul makes it clear, let's say in Galatians 1.10, for, for am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, Christian, here's, here's a question for you. Do you suffer from gospel shame? I came up uh, with a list derived from a blog post that kind of helps us think through the issue. Are you ashamed to read the Bible on the airplane? Are you ashamed to place a Bible on your desk at work? Are you ashamed to pray with a brother or sister in public? Are you ashamed to speak out on issues that matter to Jesus? Are you ashamed to ever mention Jesus in a post on social media? Are you ashamed to thank God when announcing the birth of a child? Are you ashamed to select Christian in religious views on your Facebook profile? Are you ashamed to mention the name of Jesus when you are with people who aren't Christians? Are you ashamed to thank God for your meal when people who aren't Christians are present? 
Are you ashamed to communicate your disapproval when a colleague or friend blasphemes the name of Jesus? Are you ashamed to display your faith in a way that would be visible to guests when they enter your home? Are you ashamed to explain that the reason for your goodness, not swearing, being honest at work, etc., is not because you are nice, but because you love Jesus? Are you ashamed to meet with other Christians in public gatherings outside the church? Are you ashamed of telling people that the reason you can't make an activity is because you will be attending church or Bible study? I mean, we live in a world where people are publicly unashamed of what they should be ashamed of, ashamed of. They're out and proud. No shame here. And when Christians cower in silence and act embarrassed, keep their head down and their head low, what is the message that we are sending? Now, the general public, I mean, they will bring up all the failings of Christians. The Crusades. They don't know much about the Crusades, but it's popular to blame Christians for that, whatever that means. Televangelists, the history of slavery, support of Donald Trump, whatever. They will target you and link your shame with the activity of other Christians. And, and frankly, some Christians do inexcusable things. And if we were to take the bait and make that the battlefield, we've already lost. Our source of confidence, our source of honor, comes with the fact that there is a gospel message that helps us to be right with the Lord. And because we are right with the Lord because of the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is the resurrected Lord who will come back and make all things right, we know that at the end of the days, we will not be ashamed, but that He will shame all those who post Him. And so pushing back gospel shame is to remember that the gospel we're ashamed of should be a source of honor. Because through the work of Jesus, we are going to be honored, not because we're honorable, but because Jesus died and paid it all. We are now righteous in Him, and we will be honored as sons and daughters of the King for all eternity. We have a big view of God that is driven by a big view of the gospel you will have a deep conviction that all suffering is right and appropriate and He is worth it all. The big God gospel is the antidote to gospel shame. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gospel and what it means. And Lord, we are stealing ourselves and being prepared to live in a world that will seek to shame us. But Father, may we not take the bait May we endure the shame of this world that Paul experienced, that Jesus experienced to receive the honor that comes from you. Strengthen our church in Jesus' name, amen.